I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the Philosophy Department at King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Longitudinal Studies, Exploration and Science. There's an understandable temptation to see the 16th century as a kind of prequel, a period interesting primarily because of what came next. I'm as vulnerable to this temptation as anyone, and so we've explored the possibility that Enlightenment science emerged thanks to the developments of this earlier time. The humanist assault on scholastic orthodoxy and the reformers' assault on religious orthodoxy made it possible to think new thoughts and look to direct experience rather than long-recorded wisdom. And I do think that this is part of the story. There is, though, a piece of advice we should always remember when trying to understand the course of human affairs. Follow the money. The scientific achievements that were already starting to come thick and fast around the turn of the 17th century did involve novel epistemologies, cultural and religious factors, but they also had more than a little to do with the desire to get stinking rich. That's why the British scientists we already covered were so fascinated by alchemy and by the subjects of astronomy and magnetism, which were needed for navigation and thus for the exploitation of the new world. This spectrum of philosophical inquiries just might lead to a literal pot of gold. And not only British scientists, as Elizabeth and her advisors were keenly aware, they were competing, and not entirely successfully, with other burgeoning imperial powers, especially Spain and Portugal. The monarchs of these nations sent representatives around the world and oversaw the scientific activities that supported those travels. It has thus been remarked that Spanish science and its anticipation of the Enlightenment had more to do with economics and politics than with religion. Not that most people think of Spanish or Portuguese exploration primarily as an anticipation of the Enlightenment. Another book on the topic poses the exasperated question, why do students and the general public think of the Iberian empires in terms of ignorant, zealot friars and plundering conquistadors, rather than of savvy naturalists and learned cosmographers? Well, it might have something to do with all the zealot friars and plundering conquistadors who wreaked catastrophe upon much of the world's population. We'll get to that next time. But first, we should familiarize ourselves with the historical context of global exploration and the way that science and philosophy were involved in that effort and significantly pushed forward as a result. Even this less unpleasant aspect of the tale begins with Spain and Portugal quite literally dividing the world between them. They did so in the Treaty of Tordesillas, signed in 1494 in the wake of a papal edict the previous year that called for a split in colonializing activities. The Spanish would be active to the west and the Portuguese to the east of a line of longitude running through the Atlantic and encircling the whole earth. Brazil, for example, became a Portuguese territory because its eastern end was on their side of the line. This is also why the Portuguese can claim the dubious distinction of being the first European power to get involved in the slave trade in West Africa, and why it was the Portuguese who took up the challenge of navigating along the African coast around the Cape of Good Hope to Asia, Vasco de Gama managed the Vite for the first time in 1498. Working out exactly which bits of land would belong to whom in both the Atlantic and Pacific zones, and then reaching and exploiting those lands, would call for careful astronomical calculation and advances in all the technologies of seafaring. This gave the Iberian governments reason to do something of great historical significance. They set up scientific institutions that can be seen as forerunners of more famous bodies like the Royal Society in Britain. To oversee the explorations, the Portuguese created a Casa da India in 1500, which was then used as a model by the Spanish for their own Casa de la Contratación, meaning House of Trade. 
1524, a further body called the Council of Indies was established to oversee administrative and legal affairs in the Crown's foreign possessions. The platform was set for a rationalized bureaucratic approach to global exploitation. This involved everything from training the pilots of the ships to issuing patents, beginning with one for a bilge pump in 1524, and of course, the making of maps. Astronomical observations were crucial here. For example, the cosmographer Jaime Juan, as one historian recounts, was assigned to undertake a variety of tasks and voyages to New Spain and the Philippines. The duties included supervision of pilots to see how their practices could be improved, teaching them to use navigational instruments, making maps in the Indies, and determining the latitude and longitude from lunar eclipses of localities in New Spain. Expeditions were mounted for the sake of collecting information of all conceivable kinds. Plants and animals were surveyed in so-called natural histories. For example, Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo's On the Natural History of the Indies, which described more than 250 previously unknown species. Oviedo wrote in rapturous terms about the marvels to be found across the seas. What mortal mind would be able to understand such diversity of languages, customs, and habits in the people of the Indies? Such diversity of animals, both domestic and savage, the indescribable multitude of trees cultivated by Indians, as well as those that nature by its own operation produces without the help of mortal hands, all the plants and herbs useful and beneficial to mankind. He sent his friend an iguana preserved, presumably not very well, in a barrel of soil, and tried to describe the taste of armadillo. These were creatures that could not be found in the pages of Aristotle's zoology or in other classical authors like Pliny. The Portuguese scientist, Garcia de Horta, who was active in India, put the point as diplomatically as he could. I do not speak ill of the Greeks, since there are many fine things to be found in them, but also many falsehoods. Among the most obvious falsehoods was that the ancients thought it would be impossible for humans to live at the equator. Not an unreasonable conclusion if you're living in the ancient Mediterranean, and the only example at hand is the Sahara Desert, but now European explorers were finding whole civilizations living at this supposedly uninhabitable latitude. Another Portuguese scientist, João de Castro, thus commented that experience of the world was allowing the moderns to outdo the ancients. The same conclusion was reached by a Spanish Jesuit named José Acosta, whose 1590 work, Natural and Moral History of the East and West Indies, drew on his own time in Peru. He noted that, for all that had been written about the newly discovered lands, he had not seen any author who tries to find the causes and reason of those novelties and wonders of nature. His scholastic education would have made that failing unacceptable to him. Aristotelian science, after all, demands giving causal accounts of general phenomena in nature. Acosta did his best, for example, by attempting to understand the chemical process that used mercury to extract silver from the ore that was mined in the Americas. He also gave a pretty impressive answer to a question that could hardly fail to strike those who sailed between Europe and the Americas, why is it easier to voyage in one direction than the other? He didn't know about the jet stream, of course, but did suggest that it was the result of airs moving faster near the equator. This he further explained in non-Copernican terms by saying that the celestial sphere draws the air with it as it revolves around the Earth. More often, as Acosta himself complained, authors dealt with the overwhelming amount of novel information coming from global exploration by simply presenting it to their readers without any attempt at explanation. They did not even necessarily say whether the reports that had come to them were true. A nice example comes from the encounter with the Tehuelque people in what is now southeast Argentina. These so-called Patagonians were strikingly tall, 
which might have led to the realization that they enjoyed a more nutritious diet than was available in Renaissance Europe. Instead, the Europeans leapt to the conclusion that the Patagonians were giants, which prompted the further question whether they were unnatural monsters or simply rational humans of unusual size. It was hard to say, especially hearing about it at second or third hand. So, even as pictures of these supposed giants were being used to decorate maps of the Americas, some scholars expressed skepticism as to whether there really were giants on the far side of the ocean. A modern-day discussion of this case concludes that, in the face of such uncertainty, scientific authors took refuge in mere encyclopedic reportage of, sometimes contradictory, evidence, leaving readers to make up their own minds. There was one thing everyone could agree on, though, that there was no substitute for going to have a look for yourself. The natural historians who actually went to the Americas to discover medicinal plants were dismissive about physicians back home who ought to take advice from those who had studied these plants in their natural habitat. Eyewitness testimony was crucial, and the Europeans were not too proud to turn to the so-called Indians for information so as to benefit from their native expertise. In one case, the Council of the Indies licensed the use of balsam from the New World on the advice of an explorer who was married to an Amerindian woman and had consulted his own in-laws. Nor did the authorities just wait for information to come in. Questionnaires were sent out to solicit information, with momentous results for the history of science and philosophy. One such effort the so-called Relaciones de Indias, resulted in a goldmine of information about Mesoamerican society, politics, and religion. While certainly problematic because they so often convey Amerindian ideas through the filter of European ideas and language, these and other documents from the colonial context are among our main sources for understanding Mesoamerican philosophy. So if and when we come to cover this culture on the podcast, as I hope to do in the coming years, we'll be drawing extensively on the Spanish records. And the Americas weren't the only place of encounter with previously unfamiliar intellectual traditions. Appropriately enough, given that we've only just started our coverage of classical Chinese philosophy on the podcast, it was at this time that Europeans first had the opportunity to grapple with Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, and other traditions of Asian thought. The central figure in this story is another Jesuit, one named Matteo Ricci. Born in 1552 in the Italian city of Macerata, Ricci studied in Rome and then at Coimbra in Portugal, where he had the opportunity to attend classes on Aquinas given by no less a thinker than Luis de Molina. He then went to Asia as a religious missionary, one of the many Jesuits who were fanning out across the globe to spread the faith, something we'll discuss in more detail in a later episode. Ricci was initially sent to Goa on the western coast of India, which the Portuguese had established as the capital of their eastern empire back in 1510, after killing about 6,000 Muslim inhabitants to get a clean slate. Ricci's methods would be considerably more peaceful. He went on to reside in a number of cities in China, including Beijing and Nanjing, two of the main urban centers of Ming period China. At first, he followed the lead of other Jesuit missionaries by adopting the dress and shaved head of a Buddhist monk. In fact, his elder colleague, Michele Ruggieri, called himself Seng, the same word used for these monks. Ruggieri also had a catechism of Christian belief produced called the Tianji Shilu, Record of the Lord of Heaven, which was full of Buddhist terminology. Confusingly, in the same work, criticisms were leveled at the Buddhist worldview. Once Ricci matured as a thinker and achieved remarkable proficiency in the Chinese language, he carried out the anti-Buddhist program more consistently, but with a twist in that he had identified Confucian philosophy as a much better fit with Christianity he started to dress like a Confucian scholar and committed classical works of Confucianism to memory, 
amazing his Chinese hosts with his ability to recite them at length. This won him the highest praise he could have hoped to receive. There is nothing foreign about him except for his face. Ritchie's attitude towards Chinese intellectual tradition was a nuanced one. When it came to natural philosophy, he felt that they lagged well behind the Europeans. He said that the sciences are not much cultivated among them, something he explained with reference to their onerous writing system. Among these people, he had the status of another Ptolemy, since they know nothing. He duly took advantage, fashioning sundials and astrolabes more advanced than anything the Chinese had, which he would often distribute as gifts to win favor among the elites whom he wanted to win over to Christianity. The Chinese were also impressed by the quality of European books, rather ironic since it was they who had invented paper, and also by the realism of European painting. What Ricci told them about this is telling, Chinese painters represent only the yang, whereas Europeans paint both yang and yin. As that suggests, Ricci was conversant with the terminology of Chinese philosophical literature. In fact, he developed a profound appreciation for Confucian thought, and wrote works that explored what he saw as a deep compatibility between Confucian and European philosophy. This was a true exchange of ideas between representatives of two cultures, one that Ricci dramatized by composing a dialogue called The True Meaning of the Lord of Heaven. He benefited greatly from conversations with Zhang Huang, a Confucian scholar who was a third-generation student of the great Wang Yangming, and who was determined to strip away Buddhist and Taoist ideas that had accreted to the classical Confucian tradition. Following suit, Ricci praised the ethical teachings of Kong Tzu, the man we call Confucius, who, ignorant of the things of the other life, had only given doctrines of living a good life in this present world and of governing and conserving the peace of the realm and the republic. By contrast, Ricci was unsparing in his criticism of other schools of thought in China. He polemicized against tendencies towards dualism and was especially concerned to refute Buddhism. Most memorable here is the face-to-face debate he had with the leading Buddhist scholar of Nanjing, whose name was Zui Lang Hongen. Ricci had a public clash with him over the nature of the world's creator, in which Hongen dismissed the need for a transcendent power like the Christian god. Even a humble creature like a human should be capable of making all things. After all, you can create anything you want by yourself just by thinking about it. In this case, Ricci apparently failed to appreciate the full metaphysical and epistemological import of what his opponent was saying. He simply replied that ideas are only representations of things in the world, like images in a mirror. Given his antipathy toward Buddhism, it was awkward for him that his own belief in the afterlife resonated more powerfully with that tradition than with Confucianism, but Ricci did his best to persuade his Chinese allies, who were sympathetic to Confucianism, of the Christian religion and of the power of European philosophy more generally. For example, he argued on behalf of the Greek scheme of four elements and against the Chinese five-element scheme, which counts metal and wood among the fundamental materials. He even did his part to spread knowledge of Stoicism in China by translating a Latin version of the writings of Epictetus into Chinese. Of course, Ricci was no disinterested explorer of ideas. His determination to master Chinese literature and philosophy stemmed from a deeper motivation, which was to win souls for Christ. Still, he stands as the best example from this period of a European voyager who found within himself the intellectual resources and curiosity to master a non-European philosophical tradition. His strong preference for Confucianism and opposition to Buddhism showed just how deeply he had immersed himself. Ricci did not see Chinese thought as monolithic. To the contrary, he was well aware of its diversity, and within that diversity, he definitely knew what he liked. 
In his dealings with men like the Confucian scholar Zhang Huang or Li Zizhao, a young man whom Ricci tutored in mathematics, Ricci also showed himself able to treat non-Europeans as peers and colleagues. It all makes for a sharp contrast with the behavior mostly displayed by the colonizers of the 16th century. Even as Ricci was successfully going native in China, the Spanish were meeting out the most savage of treatment to the so-called natives of the Americas. Supposedly, they, like Ricci, came to spread the Catholic faith, but what they in fact brought was, for the most part, servitude and death, and what they were, for the most part, seeking was not souls, but wealth. The hypocrisy and cruelty was evident, and some few Europeans were willing to point it out, and even to demand that it stop. That's the topic we'll be exploring next time here on the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. <laughs>